Hello, I'm Shane Hartsfield, pastor of Beaver Baptist Church. Thank you for listening to our weekly podcast. If you have any questions about what it means to follow Christ or questions about our church, direct you to our website, beaverbaptist.com, for our contact information. Weekly, we study exegetically through books of the Bible. And now, join us as we dive into today's passage. Our text this morning is Psalm 90. You can open your Bibles to Psalm 90. It's page 588 in the... Pew Bible there in front of you. We're continuing our series in the Psalms. As you see above in the superscription of Psalm 90, it says, this is a prayer of Moses, the man of God. And then above that, it says book four. So this is the beginning of book four. You may remember when we introduced the Psalm several months ago, uh, that there are five books of the Psalms. So this is the first of book four. You can see the breakdown here on the screen of what psalms uh, constitute what books. And before we get into Psalm 90 this morning, I want to take a minute to explore the story of the psalms. And one of the things we love about the psalms is how accessible, how relatable they are to life. You know, you can just open it up. Almost any page in the Psalms, scan a few of them and and find one that really fits, really resonates with what's going on in your life at any given moment. We love that about them, and and rightly so. But but sometimes it's good for us to kind of take a step back, too, and, and see what it is, the big picture that's being painted, the story of the Bible as a whole, and hear the story of the Psalms. So I want us to kind of take a panoramic view of what's going on here for a minute. Um, remember, this is a book of songs, right? A book of poetry, a book that was mostly sung by Israel. And like any good music, good music tells a story. So the Psalms are telling us a story, okay? Um, I know some of you pagans out there think that you shouldn't listen to Christmas music until after Thanksgiving. We don't go by that rule in my house. Um, uh, my, my favorite Christmas album is, uh, is a guy, uh, you may have not heard of him. His name's Andrew Peterson. He's a Christian author and singer-songwriter. The album is called Behold the Lamb of God, and then the subtitle is The True Tall Tale of the Coming of Christ. That's such a great subtitle. The True Tall Tale of the Coming of Christ. It tells a story. He tells a story in that album of starting all the way at the beginning of the biblical narrative and leading up to Christ's arrival, this beautiful story, and he sings it. It's a great album. You should go buy it if you don't have it. But the Psalms are telling a beautiful story too. And like that album, they are mainly a story that gets sung So what is the story that the Psalms are telling? We saw at the very beginning in Psalm 1 and 2, if you'll remember back then, God is king. We just sang about this. God is sovereign. He is the king of the world. He's sovereign over us. But the world, Psalm 2, is full of people who are raging against the king, opponents of the king. We're not aligned with him and his purposes. 
But the blessed man in Psalm 1, and then again in, at the end of Psalm 2, remember the blessed man is the one who takes refuge in the king, the one who delights in his law and meditates on it day and night. And so one way we can look at the Psalms is by thinking of these characters. Some of the Psalms zoom in and, and talk about the character of God, his nature and who he is as king over us. Some of the Psalms zoom in to these opponents and see what's going on with all of these nations and peoples who are raging against the king and his anointed one. And then some of the Psalms zoom in on those of us who are aligned with the king, who are submitted to his rule and reign. And sometimes see how Our lives interplay with the lives of the opponents. That's one way we can look at the Psalms. If we focus the lens a little differently, we can see that the shape of the Psalms and the story that they're telling tracks mainly with the life of David and Israel in subsequent generations after David. Put those those books back up there for a minute for me. Um, in, in books one and two, Shane preached on Psalm 72 last week, which is the last psalm of book two. Psalms one and two are almost um, are primarily Davidic psalms. Almost all of the psalms of David are front-loaded into these first two books of the psalms. Psalm 72, you may remember, is a psalm of Solomon. Remember this? It was a, it was a royal song, a, a coronation of the king. And then at the very end of Psalm 72, we have that phrase that, um, that the, the songs of David, the son of Jesse, have ended. So it's like David, the, the kingship of David has passed to Solomon in Psalm 72. And then in Psalm 73, at the beginning of book three, there's a, there's a new tone that takes shape. It's a, it's a tone mainly of distress and uncertainty, There are a lot of psalms of lament in book three. And so tracking with Israel's history, if you'll remember what happens is after David and Solomon, everything just kind of goes downhill after that, right? The nation splits into their civil war and they lose their national identity. They're overthrown by foreign kingdoms and carried off, scattered among the nations as exiles, so there's this distress and uncertainty that, that rings throughout book three. It seemed as if God had forgotten his promises. We just saying, your plans are still to prosper. You have not forgotten us. It seemed to Israel like God had forgotten his promises. And then we get to Psalm 90, the first book of uh, the first psalm of book four, and it starts out with this psalm of Moses, this prayer of Moses, the man of God. And then at the very end of the book in Psalm 105 and 106, those psalms tell the story of God delivering Israel out of Egypt during the days of Moses. So we have these bookends in, in book four of Moses and the story of Israel during the days of Moses. 
Here's what I think book four is doing. I think book four is reminding Israel that even in the midst of this national tragedy, being overthrown, Jerusalem laid waste, the temple being destroyed, even in the midst of this tragedy, when their sin has brought all of these terrible consequences, God is faithful to his promises. It's, book four is saying to Israel, remember Moses, remember how God rescued the people of Israel way back then. He has not forgotten you. At the end of Psalm 106, there's still this cry for rescue. Psalm 106, it ends like this. Save us, O Lord, our God, and gather us from among the nations. Gather us from among the nations. They've been scattered all over the place, overthrown by these foreign powers. And so there's still this cry for salvation. But then book 5 and 107, book 5 opens like this. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands. Did you catch it? At the end of 106, he says, save us, gather us from the nations. And at the beginning of 107, he says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. He has gathered us. That prayer at the end of 106 has been answered by the beginning of 107. So book five is full of these praises and this building expectation of a new and better Davidic king. We'll look at some of those psalms in the coming days. You see the story? You see the picture, the panoramic view? It's a great story. If you just read a psalm here and there, you might miss it. Even if you read the whole thing from beginning to end, you may not necessarily see it. I've been encouraged to hear some of you talking about how you've been reading through the Psalms and and even memorizing some of them. Um, I I think seeing this panoramic view will hopefully just heighten your appreciation and love for the Psalms. St. Jerome was an early church father in the 300s. He said this, the scriptures are shallow enough for a baby to come and drink without fear of drowning and deep enough for a theologian to swim in without ever touching the bottom. Shallow enough for a baby to come and drink without fear of drowning and deep enough for a theologian to swim in without ever touching the bottom. That's certainly true of the scriptures. I think it's true of the Psalms as well. All right, so let's let's dive into Psalm 90 together. Maybe you just want to come and take a little sip. That's okay too. Psalm 90. As I mentioned before, book three, which ends with Psalm 89, closes on a note of uncertainty and distress. Look in Psalm 89 at verse 38. But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. So this is talking about David, the anointed one, the Davidic covenant, the crown of David. It seems as if, it seems as if the Lord has forgotten his promises. 
Look at 46 and 47. How long, O Lord? How long will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. When we come to Psalm 90, we need to feel this sadness and despair, this uncertainty Israel was feeling. I was thinking about this as I was watching that veterans video. I think a lot of veterans can resonate with some of these feelings, uncertainty, distress. Maybe you can too. Life is full of uncertainty and distress a lot of times, isn't it? We'll see that played out in this psalm. And I think what Psalm 90 and really all of Book 4 helps us see is how to focus during those times of uncertainty on the one who is certain. So Psalm 90, a prayer of Moses, the man of God, the great deliverer of God's people. Verse 1, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. In the midst of crisis, in the midst of distress and uncertainty, it's sometimes easy to forget that God is there. It's easy to forget God's faithfulness. I was thinking about those folks out in California, fleeing this massive fire. So many people lost their homes. Uncertainty and distress all around us. Moses is here to remind Israel and to remind us that even when our circumstances, even when our situation seems really gloomy, really uncertain, full of distress, we just need to focus our lens Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. We see things so narrowly, don't we? So constrained by time and place and circumstance, but not God. God is not bound by time. God is, God has, there's never been a time that God did not exist. There's never been a place where God was not there. He is everywhere. He sees everything. He is the creator. He is not created like we are. He is the creator cannot hide from God from everlasting eternity past to everlasting eternity future. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He was and is and is to come. God is timeless. These issues that come up in verses 3 through 11, life and death, the brevity of our days, God's righteous anger against sin. We can only make sense of these issues in light of God's sovereign rule. 
We can only make sense of these questions in light of God being the timeless, everlasting one. God is sovereign over us. He is timeless, but we are timed, aren't we? The theme of verses 3 through 6 is the brevity of life, which is in stark contrast to from everlasting to everlasting you are God. Look at verse 3. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. This is a reflection on creation, right? When man was formed out of dust, and then after the fall, God says to him, to the dust you shall return. Verse 4. For God, a thousand years is like yesterday when it's past. But verses 5 and 6, our lives are swept away like, like with a flood, forgotten as quickly as a dream, like the grass that's renewed in the morning but withers away in the evening. Our life is like the passing of a day, like a mist, James says. We are a vapor, we just sung, but you are eternal. God is timeless, but we are timed. And then in verses 7 through 11, we see the reason that we are timed, the reason for life's brevity, sin. Sin and God's righteous anger against it. Verse 7, we are brought to an end by God's righteous anger. Our iniquities are before him. Our secret sins are not secret. They're not hidden from God. We are the Israelites of Exodus 32. Morgan just read. Moses goes up on the mountain, and what do the Israelites do? They burn all their jewelry, make a golden calf of it, and say, Here is our God that delivered us from the hand of Pharaoh. We are so quick to forget, aren't we? So prone to wander. So easy to get wrapped up in the circumstances of life that we forget the faithfulness of God. Now, we haven't made a literal image of gold like they did, but we're just like them Our days pass away under his wrath, verse 9. Our years come to an end like a sigh. Seventy, maybe eighty, but full of toil and trouble. And then they're gone. Moses is using this contrast between God being timeless and our lives being so brief and timed to plead with God to turn away from his anger. Saying, God, you are everlasting and holy. We are mortal and sinful. Dealing with the same question that was asked in 8946, how long, O Lord? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Don't let it be long, Lord, Moses is saying. Remember, our life is short. 
Who, verse 11, who considers, who can know the power of your anger, God, and your wrath according to the fear of you? So then we come to verse 12. Therefore, or so, in light of God being timeless and we being timed, in light of God's holy, righteous anger against our unrighteousness. Teach us, God, to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Do you notice the connection to the end of verse 11? The fear of God. Proverbs says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Here's what Moses is saying. God, you are timeless. We are timed. You are holy. We are not. So teach us, Lord, teach us to fear you, to know that our days are numbered, and to gain a heart of wisdom. How do you get a heart of wisdom? I'm going to give you a really simple formula. How do you get a heart of wisdom? Read the Bible. Pray. Come to church. Read the Bible, pray, and be a part of the church family. That's how you gain a heart of wisdom. God has revealed himself to us in his word. He has, as we'll see here in a moment, opened up the way for us to speak with him freely whenever we want. And he has given us a family, a church family Read the Bible, pray, go to church, do the one another's of Scripture together, arm in arm, hand in hand, love one another, serve one another, encourage one another, admonish one another. That's how to gain a heart of wisdom. Verse 13 then, this is a really interesting verse, reads, return, O Lord, how long, how long have pity on your servants. In that story in Exodus 32 that Morgan read that uh, already referenced once, Israel had made the golden calf. God's wrath burned hot against them, and then Moses intercedes for them, right? Moses stands between God and his righteous anger and the people. And in 32.12, he says this, turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Those two verbs, turn and relent, are the same two verbs right here in Psalm 90, verse 13. Translated a little bit differently, but the exact same words. Return, O Lord, can can be read turn. Turn away from your burning anger. Have pity on your servants, can be read relent, Lord. Relent for the sake of your servants. Just what Moses did on the mountain, so is he doing here. Israel needed this same prayer. Turn, Lord, from your burning anger. Relent. Save us. Gather us back from the nations. Moses stood between God, his righteous anger, and the people and their idolatry. 
And you know what, brothers and sisters? This is exactly what Jesus does. You see it? Jesus is the better Moses. He stands between us and God. And he says to God, relent. Don't let your wrath burn them up. Turn from your righteous anger. What a great Savior. Our iniquities are ever before him. Our our sins that we think we keep secret that nobody knows about, they're not hidden from God, but Jesus stands in the gap and says to God, turn, God, don't let your wrath consume them. On behalf of your covenant promises, don't consume them. Jesus says, I will die in their place. I will take the punishment that their sins deserve. Yeah. Thank you, Jesus. Then in verse 14, It's like Moses is saying now, it's like we're given a second chance, a second chance at life all over again. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. Remember back in verses five and six, the morning and evening was used to refer to the brevity of our life. So satisfy us in the morning is like saying, We've got another chance. We've got new life. God has turned from his wrath and shown his compassion. He's had pity. He's relented. And then, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen evil. All the time references from the first two stanzas from 3 to 6 and 7 to 11, all these time references are, are flipped on their head now. Maybe you've been thinking, man, I don't like all this talk of God's wrath and anger. Where's the love? Where's the grace and mercy? Well, here it is. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. In Exodus 34, verse 5, just a couple of chapters after the text we read earlier, Moses had prayed to God, God, show me your glory, right? And it says in Exodus 34, 5, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Friend, hear the character of God here. Yes, his anger burns hot against sin, as it ought to, and as, as, as you want it to, right? We, we want sin to be punished especially when it's somebody else's. 
sin must be punished. But, but God says, I am merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So many people have this misconception that the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath and anger. But the God of the New Testament, that's the God of grace and mercy and love. No, God is one. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. From everlasting to everlasting, righteous and holy against sin, just in his anger against sin and sinners, but slow to it, right? Slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Praise God for his steadfast love. There's one more thing I want us to see here, and it relates again back to the story of the Exodus. Look again at verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. So before Moses gets going on this dirge about the brevity of our life and God's anger against sin, he's reminding us, reminding Israel that in all generations, God has been our dwelling place. Think back to Exodus again, right after these passages that we've just been referring to, what gets built? You remember? Anybody? The tabernacle. The tabernacle gets built. What is the tabernacle? It's the dwelling place of God. Right? It's it's the place that God ordered to be made so that he could come and be with his people. In all generations, God has been our dwelling place. In the chapter right before this, in the Psalms, what are they lamenting? What are they distressed about? The temple had been destroyed. What was the temple? It's God's dwelling place. It's what David built to replace the tabernacle, the permanent dwelling place of God, or so they thought, until it got destroyed. So we get this song of Moses to remind Israel that in all generations, God has initiated, God has condescended, has come down to dwell with us. See where I'm going with this? John, like all the New Testament authors, knew their Bible. He knew his Bible. He meditated on the law day and night. So when he's thinking about the coming of Christ, when he's thinking about the incarnation, the fact that God came to be with us, what does he say? He says he took on flesh and dwelt among us. You know what the word is there? He tabernacled. That's the word. Jesus took on flesh, God took on flesh and tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son of, from the father, full of grace and truth. Grace there in John 1 comes straight from the word for steadfast love. The steadfast love of God in Exodus 34 
that satisfies us in the morning in Psalm 90 takes on its full meaning in the coming of Christ, takes on flesh in the coming of Christ, who stands between us and God so that we can have new life, so that we can say, God, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. Do you see how great this story is, friends? How does this psalm teach us to think? Remember, these application questions we're asking. How does it teach us to think? How does it affect our heads? How does it teach us to feel? What kind of emotions ought we have? What does it do to our hearts? And what, what do we ought to do? What do we do with our hands because of this? How's, so first, how does it th- teach us to think? It teaches a lot about God's character, doesn't it? From everlasting to everlasting, he is God. He is timeless. He's rightly angry against sin. He's just. But he's also slow to anger. Abounding in steadfast love. We've also learned that our life is short. Our days are numbered. Death is looming. And so what does this do to our emotions, to our hearts? How ought we feel about this? In some way, it kind of gives us a heavy heart, doesn't it? If you've read the Pilgrim's Progress A Christian on the way to the celestial city over and over again talks about the heaviness of the burden of sin that he is carrying. Yeah. The brevity of life, the reality of our own sin, that's a that's a heavy burden. It's a somber reality. But on the other hand, For those of us who are in Jesus, for those of us who are followers of Christ, we can say with Moses, Lord, you've been our dwelling place in all generations. We know in fullness what Moses only knew in shadows, right? God took on flesh and dwelt among us. His name is Jesus. He's saving us from our Sins. He's taking away that burden that we could never carry on our own. His death and resurrection satisfies the wrath of God. He stands in the gap for us. So that makes our hearts full, doesn't it? We can say, God, you have satisfied us with your steadfast love because of Christ. What, is it, what does this psalm tell us to do? To do with our hands? What kind of action steps should we take? Well, we didn't look at this until, until right now. That this repeated request at the very end of the psalm in verse 17. Establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. I think the application here is, Whatever you set your hands to do, do it to the glory of God. 
Work hard to God's glory. Whether you're driving a truck, fixing a truck, working at a bank, cleaning a house, whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. It's part of God's purpose in creating us, right? Work didn't come after the fall. He created us to work. So work hard to the glory of God. In 1 Corinthians, at the very end of 1 Corinthians, there's this long chapter, chapter 15, about the bodily resurrection. Long discourse, Paul teaching about why it's essential that we believe in the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus and of humans. And he ends that chapter like this. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Moses says in this prayer to the Lord, establish the work of our hands. Let your work be shown to your servants there in verse 16. Paul says, abound in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Work hard. Work hard to the glory of God. The flip side of that is don't be lazy, right? Don't be a mooch. Work hard. Don't slack off just because you can get by with it. Work hard to the glory of God. And then, finally, what does this mean for those of you who may not be a follower of Jesus? If you have not repented of your sins and trusted Christ's work as your own. We talk a lot about repentance around here, if you haven't noticed that. Why do we, why do we talk about it so much? Why do we talk about repentance like we do? For one, because the Bible talks about it a lot, and that's a good reason. But another reason is because in this neck of the woods, everybody believes in God. Right? Everybody believes in God. Andy and I went out to eat last week. Um, we got to share a little bit with, with, our, with our waiter, and he was clearly lost as can be. And I mean, he would have admitted it, I think. But he said, I mean, I, like, I believe in God and stuff, you know. Everybody believes God. Everybody kind of gives this verbal assent of believing in God. The Bible says, though, to be a true follower of Jesus, you must repent. You must repent. What does it mean to repent? Turn away. Yeah, it's a great way to think of it. Another way you can think of it is, is belief in action. We just got, we just looked at working hard for God, you can think of repentance as belief in action, belief that works, belief that has some feet to it, not just belief in word, not just these, this, this kind of verbal assent. Yeah, I believe, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. The Bible says the demons believe. But in order to be a follower of Jesus, in order to Submit to God's sovereign rule, you must repent. 
And that starts with coming to grips with your own sin. That's what this psalm has talked a lot about. We are, our iniquities are ever before God. Our sins cannot be hidden in the light of his presence. Jesus stands in the gap for you, friend. And your sins that God's anger and wrath is rightly turned against, Jesus says to God, turn, relent. And if you put belief in action, if you repent of your sin and turn to Christ, He will save you. He'll save you. Just like he saved Israel in the days of Moses, just like he saved Israel in the days of a broken kingdom, he will save you. His steadfast love is the only thing that satisfies. So turn to Jesus and be satisfied today. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. God, it is a light to our feet, a lamp to our path. I pray that we would walk in it, that we would be doers of it and not just hearers. God, I pray that you would teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom we would fear you and walk out our days following hard after you. Satisfy us, Lord, with your steadfast love. For those who are here who have not repented and turned to Jesus, I pray that they would do that today. Today would be the day of salvation. That they would hear the word of God and believe it. Not just in word, but in deed, Lord, that they would turn to Jesus and be saved. God, you are the one and only God. There's no other God to serve but you. Thank you for your mercy and graciousness toward us. Thank you that while we were sinners, Christ stood between you and us and took the punishment that we deserved nailed to the tree so that death no longer has dominion over us. God, we look forward to the day when we will be made like him, risen like him, to never have to suffer the consequences of sin and distress and uncertainty again. Thank you for your word that meets us right where we're at and teaches us to walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for tuning in today. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast if this message has been helpful to you. Again, if you have any questions, go to our website for our contact information, and we'll see you next time.